0: this morning to Matthew chapter 13. we well, have enjoyed singing of patriotic songs today, and this Wednesday we celebrate, who knows, what, what, what birthday are we celebrating of our country? 236, that is right. And here's a little piece of trivia for you that you might not know, that Zella there has been alive for f- over 40% of our country's history. That that's a long time. Forty percent of our Christ, of our of our history, this country, Zella has been alive, and that's uh, remarkable. Ninety-seven years old, coming up on Tuesday. Well, we are celebrating the two hundred thirty-sixth birthday, and of course, we're so thankful what, for what God has given us in this country. I mean, just a place where we can come and worship. We we don't have any interference. And we firmly believe that it is God that made this country great. I mean, we we owe it all all to God. And even though our founding fathers were not all that they should have been, many of them were not all they should have been concerning their personal faith in Christ, yet we do believe that it was God that guided them and gave them the knowledge that they needed and gave them the courage that they needed to begin the greatest nation upon this earth. And it's the greatest nation, I think, because there have been more people that have been saved through the influence of missionaries, from uh, Christian people in the United States than any other country of the world. And what that shows us is that God is sovereignly in control, that he can even take those who don't know him and he can use unbelievers to accomplish his purposes. And I think that in, in many cases that's what he's done in this country. But even though we know that we have this wonderful country that God has given us, and we have that sense and we'll have this joy, I hope, of celebration this coming Wednesday, there's still a great deal of discouragement among Bible believing Christians. We look at the state of affairs of our country, and we have a presidential election that's coming up, and in my opinion, there are no good choices. Uh, We get to choose from the moral bankruptcy of one party, and and the theological bankruptcy of both parties. And so it's easy for us as Christians to become discouraged. That here we have a nation that once was a a strong witness for the gospel of Christ, and, and now we're beginning to lose the influence of the gospel in this country. We're losing it to immorality. We're losing it to perversions of the gospel. And sadly, the blame goes to mostly, I think, Christian churches. It's mostly the fault of Christian churches. Now this is why I believe this text that we're reading today is so important. This is a text for discouraged believers because what it teaches is that our side is going to win. It teaches that being on Jesus' side is the best side, that we will triumph, that God's kingdom is coming and God's kingdom will overcome and one day we will live in perfect peace, we will live in perfect righteousness. Our king is coming, and when he comes, his kingdom will cover the entire world as waters cover the sea. So let's read our text today, and I want to discuss with you this morning little is much when God is in it. If you'd stand with me, please, as we look at Matthew 13, beginning in verse number 31. Matthew 13:31. another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like to a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all seeds. But when it is grown, it is the greatest among herbs, and becometh a tree, so that the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof. Another parable, spake he unto them, The kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, which a woman took and hid, hid three measures, hid in three measures of meal till the whole was leavened. All these things spake Jesus unto the multitude in parables, and without a parable spake he unto them, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables, I will utter things which have been kept secret since the foundation of the world. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. For your word, and we do thank you for this great country in which we live. And Lord, I pray as we look at this text today that we will find encouragement here. There is so much to be discouraged about as we look and see what's happening in our country, but Lord, we know you are in control of all things, and when our trust is in you, we have no fear. We know that you control it all. Thank you, Lord, for this time we have together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, you may be seated. Well, I do believe that we have a very encouraging text here today. There's a very simple truth, I think, that's taught in these two parables, the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of a little leaven in the lump. And the truth of this is that God's people are on the winning side. And that is a simple truth that I believe, but I, but I have to be honest with you that as I was studying For this message and reading these parables, I had a great deal of difficulty, a great deal of conflict deciding how I should approach this and what these parables mean. Now, I want to read to you the the last two verses of this text first. In, In verse 34, it says, All these things spake Jesus unto the multitude in parables, and without a parable spake he not unto them, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables... I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. Now, what we've learned in our previous studies in Matthew 13 is there's an intention here by Jesus to reveal truths that were not known to the Old Testament prophets. Jesus intended to hide truth from those that were not believers, to those who had rejected him as the Messiah, while he was determined to explain more truth and give more truth to those who have received him as the Messiah King. Now, some of the parables that Jesus gave are explained. For instance, we studied the parable of the sower, and Jesus gave an explanation. The parable of the wheat and tares, he gave an explanation. But these two parables that we read here in verses 31 through 33, there is no explanation given for them. And I said that I I had a great deal of difficulty coming to the meaning of these these, because commentators argue over this because there is no meaning that Jesus gave in the Scriptures. He doesn't explain these. And so there are actually two opposing opinions about what these parables mean. And the odd thing about it is that those two meanings are both truth. It doesn't matter which side that you take. You're not going to run afoul of truth in, in another part of the Scripture. And so it's left up to us to discover what is it that Jesus intended to say. Now, I don't think that Jesus had two meanings or that originally he didn't intend two meanings. I think that he had one meaning in mind. And we have to figure out what that one meaning is. And I believe that what Jesus did here was to give us encouragement. Now, I'll explain more in the message as I go along what these two opinions are. Both of them are good. Both of them... Uh, Are are acceptable. And I even started outlining a message with the opposite opinion. I started the message and trying to figure out, well, how am I going to present this? And and I began to look at it more and more, and then I decided, well, that's not the meaning that I think that Jesus intended. Now, he he intended to show the disciples. I think they did understand it. He's not trying to hide truth from them, but it is difficult in some ways to understand when we look at how Jesus is trying to present this material, the exact point that he's trying to get across. Now, we remember, of course, that he is talking about the kingdom of God. All the parables of this 13th chapter are concerning God's kingdom. And the kingdom is actually a difficult concept to grasp, especially when we're thinking that we're usually uh, having our minds a visible kingdom. Uh, We think about a visible government the government of the United States. You go to Washington, D.C., and there are huge buildings there that represent our government. There's the Capitol building, and you'll see the Supreme Court building. Um, there's the Capitol Mall, and there's the memorials for, for Lincoln, for Jefferson, the Washington, Washington Monument. And so you have all these great buildings in Washington, D.C. that we can see. It's visible there. That, that's a representation of our government. And then you look at a map of the United States. You can see the boundaries. You see the borders of our country. We recognize the shape of it. It's a very visible thing. There's structures. There's a domain. We grasp that. And the same thing is true of other countries. You look at Great Britain, and they have their Buckingham Palace and the Tower of London, and there's the changing of the guard. And so you're able to see those things. Those are visible things. Well, understand how that... The disciples thought when Jesus began to teach them about his kingdom, how did they get a grip on what he meant about this kingdom of his that was coming? Because they were used to seeing the same things that we see, very visible things. Rome's presence was certainly evident. There was a magnificent fortress that had been built very near to the temple area called the Fortress of Antonia. And then uh, Herod had... Enlarge the temple structure to where it was just a magnificent example of Roman architecture. There were parades, there were extravagant celebrations, there were smartly dressed soldiers that were in the street. They even built highways to accommodate the fanfare of a visiting dignitary from Rome. And so the disciples saw all of that and they expected that when the king comes, when the one who is the great king of Israel, when he comes, that they're going to see the very same things again that uh, the government of him would be, would be evident. They would, they would see it. And so their brains were actually disconnected from their expectations when Jesus began to teach them. And their thinking about his kingdom had to be completely reoriented. And so Jesus spoke in parables to explain this interval in the kingdom when there are no visible displays, when there are no buildings, there aren't any parades, There is no military complex. Instead, there are 12 men, 12 men, and mostly fishermen. One of them is a hated tax collector. Another is a a rebel zealot. And these 12 men are following a carpenter from this no-name town called Nazareth. So you see a problem? It's actually a very discouraging problem because the disciples thought, when they were chosen and they began to understand who Jesus was, they, they hoped to be powerful dignitaries in this kingdom of God. And when that didn't materialize, when this new reality started to set in, what they hoped for wasn't there. And so, of course, they became discouraged. And you compare that to the parables that we've already discussed. There's discouragement on top of discouragement. Jesus had given them the parable of the sower. And what does it teach? It teaches that, the gospel is going to be shut out by most people, that they would preach. And he, Jesus gave the example, one out of four, one out of four seeds actually grew into a vibrant plant. And that was teaching that there are so many people that are going to reject the gospel of Christ. And then he gave them the parable of the tares. And it's evident through that, that Satan would actually have a lot of success. He talked about the man, uh, the, the enemy that came and sowed tares in the field and it had almost overtaken the field. And so it appears Satan will have a lot of success. And what is the outcome of all of that as Jesus begins to teach? Great discouragement. Great discouragement. Jesus illustrates here, though, with the parables, though you are discouraged, though things do look bad, though it looks like you're never going to win, or this this kingdom of Christ is never going to come, he gives the parables to give us encouragement that God's side is always going to win. And that his kingdom will be multiplied in ways that people can never imagine. And so he illustrates that with two examples, the little mustard seed and a pinch of yeast that's put into a lump of bread. Now we want to begin today as we talk about what Jesus taught here. It's not the opposite opinion that I had a moment ago, but really what he's teaching here is the phenomenal growth of the kingdom of God. Look at verse 31. Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like to a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all seeds. But when it is grown, it is the greatest among herbs and becometh a tree, so that the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof. Now let me begin with that opposite view that I told you about a moment ago. The mustard seed grows into a tree, and the opposite view than the one I want to give you today is the view that says that a mustard seed growing into a large tree actually represents abnormal growth. That what would happen with God's kingdom is that it would grow into a great tree, an abnormal tree, that the kingdom would actually swell to a monstrosity that God didn't intend. And we have a great example of that. We have... The example of the Roman Catholic Church. It has its hierarchy of priests and bishops and archbishops and cardinals and a pope. The Vatican is recognized as a sovereign government. They have an army. Well, it's a limited army now, but in times past, it was able even to depose powers of this world, depose kings. And there was religious enforcement against people that opposed the Roman Catholic Church. And then this view says that the birds that roost represent evil spirits, that it's the same as the birds that were in the parable of the sower that came and snatched away the seeds of the gospel before they could take root. And we have to say that there is a spirit of evil in Roman Catholicism, that it's pagan, that they have destroyed the gospel with an elaborate system of work salvation. They even believe they believe they control not only the living but also the dead. And so you can see a lot of merit in that explanation, a lot of truth in it. And, and that fits also the parable of the tares, that Satan's work would be strongly evident during this time in this form of the kingdom. Now, as I said, we can find truth in that, but ultimately I rejected that meaning because I think that it really is a parable of hope, that Jesus intended to give the disciples encouragement You see, he'd he'd hit them with this information of how much opposition there would be to their work, and at times it would appear that Satan is winning. And so if that's not the meaning, if it's not a, a negative meaning to this, what does it mean? Well, I think it means first that the kingdom had a small beginning, that the kingdom would begin very small. And Jesus illustrates that with the mustard seed, which is a very small seed. In Palestine, that would be the smallest seed that a farmer would plant. And I don't want to go into the arguments that you may read about this. If you study the passage, uh, people will say, well, Jesus was wrong about this. He made a mistake. A mustard seed is not the smallest of seeds. But the point really is that the mustard seed is actually the smallest seed that the Jews would would use in farming, that they would actually plant and try to to grow as as a farming crop. So this small seed, of the mustard seed, produces a large plant. And in fact, sometimes it does grow to a height of 12 or 15 feet. It grows large enough for a bird to actually come and rest in the branches of it. We're not talking about mustard grass like we find in Sonoma County. And as you know, a, a large bug couldn't rest on that. This is not the same plant. This is the mustard seed that grows one of the largest herbs that they have in that part of the world. Now, think about how Jesus could use this example. Think about the situation that he was in, that he started with a small group of people, just a very small beginning. There are 12 men that are following him. They're huddled around this, this carpenter from Nazareth, and he did attract large crowds. People came from everywhere for the healing and for all the different miracles that he did, but what Jesus did not do was attract many true believers. And in chapter 12, the the hopes of the disciples, that the religious leaders would be on their side, those were dashed. Jesus very clearly showed that they were never going to get on board. And so that meant that this group of disciples would probably remain very small, that they would not get the support of the majority of the people. And there certainly weren't enough of them that they could have stopped the crucifixion because at that time the opposition against Jesus was growing by leaps and bounds and they took him to be crucified. There's this groundswell of biting, hateful opposition. And so this group of men is going to stay small for the time being and this kingdom, the entirety of it now is represented by 12 ragtag men that have no influence with anyone. So it's a small kingdom, isn't it? We might even say this is a microscopic kingdom. There are no armies. There are no parades. There are no buildings. There is no center of government. The only celebration they ever had is when the Romans and the Jews executed another Christian. But what Jesus is teaching them here is that it will not stay that way. And through this illustration, he shows them also the kingdom will have great success through the gospel. You see, though they started very small, with just a, a very small number, packed into that seed of the gospel that Jesus gave them was the potential for an explosion of growth. And we wouldn't really think that. You know, we take a seed and we put it beside a large tree. You take an acorn, and you put it beside the oak, and you would say, no way that this tree comes from that seed. It simply can't happen. But we know something about what God does with seeds, don't we? Scientists don't know how it happens. I mean, they can explain the mechanics of it, but a scientist has never been able to put together the components, all the parts of a seed, and get them in the right working precision so that a plant grows, they, especially a tree. They can't do it. And the same thing is true of the gospel of Christ. We have a story here that's printed on pages of India paper and we can take this story and we can tell it to people and we can explain it to them the best that we can, but we have absolutely no ability to make this burst into the new life of Jesus Christ. That takes the operation of the Holy Spirit. That takes supernatural power for that to happen. Only God can do this. You see, it takes the seed of the gospel and God regenerates the sinner and brings him to repentance and faith. Now, let's take a look for just a moment and see how God did this and how this faith that we call Christianity today just exploded and became what we know now. Turn to the book of Acts chapter 1, if you would, for a moment here. And we'll look at a few verses in Acts that show us how a small, discouraged group of people exploded into growth. Now, Jesus had told the disciples uh, just before he left, he said, You need to sit tight. You need to wait just a little while because the Holy Spirit will descend and you will receive a baptism of fire. Now, if you look first in Acts chapter 1, verse number 15, this is after Christ's ascension. It says, In those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and said, The number of names together were about 120. Now that's the part of that I want you to see. He stood up in the midst of the disciples and the number of the names was 120. And we're talking here about three years of Jesus, after three years of Jesus' ministry, thousands of people were in the crowds that heard him, but the sum total of all the believers that there were is 120 people. Now you go down to the second chapter, verse number 41, and this is after the Holy Spirit came upon the church and Peter preached this powerful message at Pentecost. And there in verse 41 it says, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And then you go on to the fourth chapter, verse number 4. It says, "Howbeit." Many of them which heard the word believed and the number of men was about 5000. So now you have 5000 more men that believe and of course the gospel is not exclusive to men, so the likely total of women and children that believed is somewhere between 50 to 15 to 20,000 people at this time. And then we go on to Acts 5:14 and there it says and believers were the more added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women. Now, we don't have a specific number there, but if the uh, multitudes are anything like what the other verses say, there's probably 3,000 to 10,000 more that get added in this spot. And then you go on to Acts 6, verse number 7, and the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. And so it keeps growing and growing Twelve men that are a small seed grew into 120 and into 3,120. And then by Acts 6, six years after Pentecost, that number is probably more than 40,000 people. So now you have a megachurch. And many people believe that the church in Jerusalem, actually by the end of the first century, grew to 100,000 people or more. And they spread out. And by the end of that first century, the gospel was known in every part of the new world, of the the world, rather. And so you see, the mustard seed became a large tree. It became large enough for the birds to come and roost in the branches. And Jesus is not talking about birds as evil spirits, but rather he's just giving an example, just to show how large that the kingdom of God would become. And so today, we find Christians in every part of the world, Now, there's much false Christianity also, but the gospel is being preached every day somewhere in the world thousands of times, and there are people that are still coming into the kingdom of God. And so what Jesus is doing for them is giving them a parable of encouragement. The disciples would be tempted to look at that small number, and they would say, no way, no way that this group can grow into a 100,000 people. And they were thinking, we're headed for oblivion. If If Jesus... The Messiah is the Messiah, and he goes to the cross, and he dies. Then the mustard seed is destroyed. The seed of the gospel is gone. But that's not what happened. The small mustard seed grew into a strong, vibrant tree. Now, we move on to the second parable, and the meaning of this parable is ultimately the same. And this is a reference for Bob here. Uh, Herman's hermits sang a song where they said, second verse same as the first and so that's what we we have here verse 33 and another parable did all of you get that bob bob got that another parable spake he unto them the kingdom of heaven is likened to leaven which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till the whole was leavened what does this parable teach well this one teaches the powerful influence of the kingdom and as the, with the parable of the mustard seed, there is another interpretation for this. that it, It's a, one with bad connotations. Some say that the leaven in the parable represents sin. And often in Scripture, leaven does represent sin. And so they say, well, this can't be anything but that. The parable has to represent sin. And I, and I, and I hope you understand that, that leaven, when the Bible talks about leaven, that's the same thing as yeast. And when you put yeast into bread dough, what happens? The bread rises, that's right. The whole loaf becomes affected by the action of that yeast. In the tabernacle and the temple sacrifices, they weren't allowed to use leaven in many of those. There was no yeast permitted because the yeast represented sin. Uh, For an example of that, God, God told the Israelites, it said, when you go into the land of Canaan, you destroy all of them, you drive all of them out because their sin will spread to you. Their sins will become your sins. And that's like leaven, that you get a little bit of sin here and a little bit there until finally it just permeates the whole bunch and everything's destroyed. Just like another saying that we use, one bad apple spoils the whole bunch. Same thing happens with poison. doesn't take very much poison to kill someone. You know, I'm not trying to give you advice on what to do with your mother-in-law, but if you if you wanted to get rid of her, you don't have to feed her the whole box of rat poison. Just give her a little bit on her Cheerios every day and that'll take care of it. Well, if leaven represents sin, then the parable becomes very discouraging because it's teaching how sin spreads through the kingdom of God and destroys it. And in some sense, we could say, well, that's happened. There's been a lot of destruction by sin in God's kingdom. There's great perversion of the gospel. People claim to be Christians, and yet they deny the deity of Christ. They deny Christ's blood atonement. They deny the inerrancy of Scripture. They're those that deny the doctrine of hell. I mean, you look at just about any Bible doctrine there is, from baptism to, to uh, the Lord's Supper to Christian living, and in all of that's been perverted in some way or another. And it doesn't matter where you go in our country, you see the effects of sin. It's really hard to find a church that that preaches straight from the Bible because we have all these perversions of the gospel that are out there. It's hard to find a church that still preaches the same gospel that was taught by Jesus and the apostles. Just go and ask any of our members who have left here and gone to other parts of the country, how hard is it to find a good church? How hard is it to find some church that really still preaches from the Bible? Well, the false doctrine that's out there and the, and the watering down of the gospel of Christ is a huge problem, a serious one. And this is why the Bible talks so much and warns so much about perversion of the word of God. And then sinners are influenced by what? Sinners are influenced by sin. Everything they do is influenced by sin. And if our government is run by sinners, then why do you ever expect them to do what's right? It's only by the grace of God that we're not in far worse shape than we are. See, sin is in the sinner's heart. Evil deeds come out of the heart. A bad heart does not produce anything good. And that's what Jesus taught in chapter 12 and used fruit trees as an example. Corrupt trees do not produce good fruit. So I could say there's, there's truth in that interpretation of that leaven. The leaven here represents sin, we can find truth in it. And it's also consistent with the parable of the tares. I mean, the tares can overtake a field. But I think we also see something else, that leaven sometimes is used as a type of sin, but there is nothing in leaven itself that is sinful. And so I agree with many others about this, that this is actually... A parable of encouragement again. So Jesus is teaching here, and I want you to get this, the permeating effect of the gospel. And so one thing that really swayed me towards this interpretation is the bleak outlook for the kingdom if this leaven represents evil. It gives us the idea that God's kingdom will be overtaken by evil, and that doesn't really sound like a victorious kingdom, does it? So evil permeates, it causes more evil, and if that's true, If evil can cause more evil, then why can't we look at it this way, that when good prevails, that good also permeates and makes things good. And that's what the gospel of Christ does. When it's injected into the heart of a sinner, the result of that is good. It makes the heart good. It changes a person that's capable only of evil into someone that has a heart for God and somebody who really wants to obey God and to do his will. And so he gives an illustration here of a woman making loaves of bread. And he says this woman took three measures of meal. And that's actually a large amount. That, that's about 50 pounds of flour. That, and that's the usual amount that they figured that a woman could handle. They had big families. Bread is a staple of their diet, and so they have to make lots of bread. And so this woman takes 50 pounds of flour, and she kneads it into dough, and then she adds a small starter piece of yeast, yeast-filled dough to that batch, uh, to the batch. And that's what they did. So you, didn't, you didn't run down to the store and get a package of yeast. And so what they would do is they would save a little bit of dough from a previous batch, and that would be the starter piece. And they would put that into their batch, and then that would cause the bread to rise. And that was actually a very common gift for young brides. One of the things that a mother would give her daughter when she got married was a piece of starter bread dough. And we tried that with our daughters, but curiously, they wanted a whole lot more stuff than that. They didn't really care for that. But this is what they did. They they gave the starter bread dough, and you take that real small little piece of that, and you mix it into the, into the rest of the dough, into the rest of that flour, and the little bit of that produces carbon dioxide and the batch of bread rises and makes delicious bread. Now tonight when we take the Lord's Supper, we take the Lord's Supper with unleavened bread. And that's, those of you that have experienced, uh, members, uh, you know it's very brittle. It's not actually very appetizing. Probably wouldn't want to save that and use that for toast and jelly for your breakfast on the next day. But this is this is what we do. We, we eat the unleavened bread for the Lord's Supper. And so if you're here tonight, you'll hear the crunch as everybody at the same time bites down on that hard piece of bread. But the parable here is actually teaching that the task of getting the gospel out to the world is a formidable one, that the whole world is without Jesus Christ. And we have to reach the entire world with the gospel of Christ. And we actually have very few people to do it. There are very few people that know Christ as Savior. You know, I looked at some statistics of of, uh, Sonoma County a few years ago, and and I'm not by any means saying that only Baptists are saved. I don't believe that. But I just got an indication of how many independent Baptists there are in Sonoma County. There are about 500,000 people in population in Sonoma County. And the numbers that are in independent Baptist churches was, I think, less than 1,500 people in independent Baptist churches. Well, it just goes to show you that there's, there's not a lot to draw on here. There's not a lot of people to help with this. But the few Jesus is teaching can have a mighty influence. We're talking about 12 disciples here that actually changed the whole world for Christ. And you think about our church and what we do. We're a very small group. And what I've been doing in the past few weeks and will continue to do in the next few weeks is to preach messages about evangelism and and we're trying to, to, to make this small group a larger group. But this small group does a lot of work. We support missionaries in other parts of the world. We have missionaries in in Mexico and in Brazil and Africa, the Philippines and India. And some of those ministries that we support are huge ministries. And there are thousands of people that are being won to the Lord in those places. New churches are being started. Think about our missionary in El Salvador, Steve Cerna. He started with just a very small church and it's still small But he's already taught that church to be interested in missions. And and they've already sent a missionary out to another part of the world to preach the gospel. So you see what happens? It becomes a mushrooming effect. And we're getting all kinds of plants involved here, wheat and mustard seeds and fruit trees and mushrooms. But the influence becomes staggering. It starts with a small group, just a small group that is willing to do what God says. Now, let me give you a final point today, and that is the personal effect of the gospel, the personal effect. And I mean, you are the person. You are the person. The gospel doesn't go anywhere unless you take it as a personal responsibility. God doesn't save people with lightning bolts from heaven. God doesn't zap people with the gospel. And he doesn't write in huge letters across the sky, trust me, I'm the Savior, believe in me. God doesn't do that. God doesn't send angels to people and preach the gospel to them. And again, no matter how many people say they saw Jesus in their bedroom at 2 a.m. last night because they ate pizza or something, Jesus does not make personal appearances to people with the gospel. The ones who give the gospel are people just like you and me. We have that responsibility, and we have to take that responsibility. And so how does, how does Jesus get this, get this gospel out, and how does it work, and how does the kingdom grow? In exactly the same way that he instructed the apostles. John fifteen sixteen says, Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you, that ye should go forth and bring forth fruit. In Acts 1, verse 8, he said, But ye shall receive power, after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And he said, uh, Paul writes in Romans 10, verse 15, As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. And this is really the answer to the growth of the kingdom we are his witnesses, and what God promises is if we will tend our part of the garden, if we will sow seeds, then he'll take that small effort and make that grow into a mighty kingdom. He takes the small influence that we have, and then it gets spread all over the world. Now let me return to my, re-op- my, my opening remarks. We are very troubled by what we see happening in America there's a lot of problems here, a lot of uh, the the perversions that we see and the and the wickedness that we see in america the turn the turning away from god this This is an election that actually makes me sick to my stomach i mean I don't know who to vote for. people say give me some advice, who do we vote for and I don't know. it looks like Satan has the upper hand, and in the next few months, hopefully it gets all sorted out and We all hope that none of the above wins and somebody else comes along. I don't know. But if that doesn't happen, if that doesn't happen, I'm not worried about it. I'm not worried about it. See, the disciples could have looked at the horrible atrocities that they were experiencing in the Roman Empire, and they would say, no way we could be successful with all this opposition. They all hate us. They're bent on destroying us. But why didn't they look at it that way? You know why? Because they weren't worried about the Roman government. Jesus taught them the truth of the kingdom, and when they learned the truth, they knew they were going to win. They never actually changed the Roman government, but their influence changed the world. The whole world benefited from the influence that the apostles had through the preaching of the gospel. And do you know that in our country, Christianity has a positive effect on people, even for people that don't believe even those that don't believe the gospel, they get the effects of Christianity. They get the fallout. God blesses us, and there are people in the country that get the fallout because we're Christians, and so they get the hospitals, and they get the education, they get the orphanages, they get charities, they get churches that do things for the Lord. devil never offered anything like that. Scripture says the devil came to kill and to destroy. He, he's always an evil influence. His buddies never helped anybody. But the influence of Christianity is what made our country great and made it what it is today. See, our country, again, gets the benefits of God's blessings because God blesses Christians, he blesses others. They get the fallout. So the worst thing, you think about it, the very worst thing that our government can do is to make it hard on Christians. It's the worst thing that they can do. I mean, you look at how much the our country has gained by tossing prayer out of our schools. Look how much the, our country has gained by removing the Ten Commandments from public places. And What's the result of that? The drug culture, crime, disrespect of young people. You see what our public school system has produced. You see how much progress there is in America by trying to limit Christianity. Now here's the thing that we know. None of the world's governments are going to stop God's kingdom. Romans couldn't do it. Roman Catholic Church couldn't do it. Communism hasn't. Fascism couldn't do it. Obama with his gay agenda is not going to do it. And Mitt Romney with his false Christianity, he won't do it either. God's people are going to win. We're going to win. And we don't need the American government on our side to do it. You know why? We're on God's side. We're on the one who controls it all. We're in his kingdom. And as Jesus teaches, one day his kingdom will become visible and that kingdom will cover the entire world. So what do we do in the meantime? We pray for our leaders. We ask God to change their minds. They will do rightly. But one thing we never do, don't pin your hopes on our government don't pin your hopes on what they're doing because if the past is any indication, if the scriptures are any indication, this world is going to get worse and worse and worse until Jesus comes. But you don't worry. Just be the permeating influence. Tend the part of the garden that God has given you. And as members of Bream Baptist Church, all of us together, tend the garden where God has put it and sow the seeds here. And if we do this, God will increase his kingdom and we'll enjoy our corner of the world. See, Jesus is teaching that little is much when God is in it. He doesn't need the resources of the world. He doesn't need what everybody else has. He takes what little that we're willing to give to him, and the small seed grows into a mighty tree. That little bit of good leavening permeates the world. Little is much when God is in it. Let's just trust him for that. Do what God says and he'll make a mighty kingdom grow in our area as well. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now, and we thank you for the truths that we find in your word, the encouragement that we find here. We are so discouraged many times as we see what's happening around us, and we don't get the candidates that we want to vote for. We we, we see evil overtaking us. It seems everywhere that we turn that there is no good outcome in anything. But what we need to learn is that your gospel can save people, that the kingdom of God will grow if your people will just give themselves to you, dedicate themselves, and to take this task as a personal responsibility of reaching those with the gospel of Christ. I pray, Lord, that you would lay that on our hearts today. And I pray that if there are lost sinners here today who haven't realized that you are the Savior, that they will understand your kingdom is coming. It will be established and there will be a separation. We've already learned that. There will be a separation between those that believe and that do not believe and the outcome is not good for those who do not have their faith in Christ. Lord, speak to our hearts today. Renew our our energy and our zeal for giving people the gospel of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.